0: From Heller Consulting, I'm Kaya Swift, and you're listening to Connected Cause. This show is for leaders at nonprofits and education institutions who are curious about technology. We're bringing you guests from technology companies, nonprofits, and higher education institutions to find out what they're learning, what they're excited about, and how you can move your organization forward in today's digital age. My guests today are Andrew Caswell and Catherine Moore. Andy has been leading digital transformation efforts at the Canadian Cancer Society for more than two decades, and he's an expert at incorporating sound strategy into technology decisions. Kathy is the digital transformation practice lead for Heller Consulting, and she guides nonprofit clients on large scale technology projects. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today, and Kathy, thank you for joining me today as well.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Kaya.
0: So to kick off the conversation, Andy, I wanted to start with you and talk about if an organization has not implemented a CRM yet, they have not started that process. What advice do you have for that type of organization that has not started that process yet?
1: Sure. Um, well, um, the first thing I'd say is there's a lot of reasons why organizations might not be quite at implementing a CRM. Could be um, it could be cost. It could be complexity. It could be um, figuring out uh, the move off a legacy system. But no matter what, if you're in that if you're in that mode, even if you're starting your implementation, work on your data now. Data is incredibly important. Um, Look for data alignment, data hygiene, look at your data um, from all of your different sources, look for alignment and look at data over time. That's something that uh, we noticed is that data gets used by different people in organizations over time. So it may look like it's aligned at the current moment, but as you go back in time, it may not be. The more emphasis you put on that now, the easier your rollout of your CRM will be and the easier other kinds of digital transformation will be as you start to leverage that data.
0: Yeah, I can absolutely see that where if you are thinking about what you want the data to look like in your future systems now, it would save you a lot of headaches down the road. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Andy, in particular is digital transformation. It's been this buzzword that's been in the corporate world and it's now been in the nonprofit world for a couple of years. And I'd love to hear how you're thinking about digital transformation and how you define it and how you think about it in the context of nonprofit operations.
1: So um, what I've learned is that the words digital transformation mean different things to a lot of different people. Pretty much everyone has their own sort of internal definition for it. Um, some people just see digital transformation as a name for the project that they have in mind right now to do something And on the far end of the spectrum, and that's where I'm tending to lead now, is uh, digital transformation being an opportunity to remake every process and interaction that an organization has with constituents. It's putting constituents at the very center and looking at constituent experience first and foremost, uh, and then building back processes with all of the opportunities we have with technology now that weren't in place when most of our processes were created years ago.
0: I love that of putting the constituent at the center and then building the processes from there instead of the reverse. And Kathy, I, I would love to hear about what you've been seeing recently, too, with the work we've been doing at Heller around digital transformation, anything that you're seeing in the projects and advice that you can share, too
2: we're definitely hearing people respond uh, to the term digital transformation um, and I would say also seeing a lot more uh, coming out of the the big three the Salesforce the Microsoft and the blackboard around you know, marketing digital transformation and marketing their tools for digital transformation. I think early in the pandemic, we saw a lot of people moving to digital solutions. So, you know, accelerating their moves to digital marketing, marketing automation, uh, accelerating adoption of digital fundraising tools. Now we are starting to really see people focus on um, the integration of data across platforms that Andy was talking about, um, really enabling organizations to put that constituent at the center with reliable data. So um, lots of work with uh, a lot of my uh, clients these days on aligning data from those years of history using different, uh, different tools, different technologies, different language, and then ensuring that you can get a full picture of what that constituent looks like so that you can provide them with the best possible Uh, customer service experience, volunteer experience, donor experience. And people are often surprised how much that relies on good quality data. And it's a big investment for organizations that has often been forgotten because there wasn't such a big cost to bad data in the past. But now it's absolutely critical (laughs) if you're going to have those reliable, trustworthy, authentic relationships with constituents.
0: And I can imagine, too, that constituents are now expecting you to have good data on them too they're expecting that you're going to know that you donated this amount that you volunteered at this time they're going to expect that of an organization because they're getting that from other
2: experiences that they're having in the corporate world. Right from their bank, from Amazon, all of those things. Absolutely, they expected, and they don't necessarily stop and think. Well, that might be a big investment that a nonprofit hasn't had the money to to prioritize. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, adoption curve for different organizations as more and more people are
1: expecting that and demanding that kind of relationship. I, I think in the in the in the world of you know Amazon. And, and uh, experiences like that, people are going that one step further, making it even more hard for charities in that they're not just expecting that the data that a charity has is accurate and up to date. They're expecting to interact with that data. They would like to have that kind of self-service um, experience and update an address, for example, or change their preferences for communication on their own without having to make a phone call or, or walk into an office or something along that line. Um, and that, of course, just raises the bar for complexity for, for those of us who are trying to build those back-end systems. So few people want to actually make that phone call now.
2: And with privacy laws the way they are, even though sometimes nonprofits can opt out of those privacy regulations, people don't know that. And people get very frustrated if they opt themselves out of something. But get emails or other communication from other systems because there's no connection across the board. And that's a very quick way to destroy your reputation. It's it's a lot of work
0: on the back end, like you said, Andy. I think that's a, a really big point. And with both of you talking about, you know, putting the constituent at the center and giving them power, really, like giving your supporters the power to interact with you the way that they would like to. A lot of that, I think, comes down to personalization. And I know, Kathy, you and I have talked at times about the importance of personalization, and how connecting with your constituents at a personal level is a key component of what a digital transformation project could look like at a nonprofit. So a question for both of you is how should nonprofits be thinking about those long lasting relationships with donors, volunteers, supporters, and how does personalization play into that relationship building component?
1: Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but uh, I think we said it already a couple of times, data, 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 um, and the cleanliness of that data. There's, I think, no easier way to turn someone off than to send them a message, you know, uh, Dear Team Fundraiser Smith, uh, because that's how the data happens to sit in, in in a in a database based on an event that happened a few years ago. If you're going to if you're going to personalize and you're going to do something as simple as including a first name, you've got to make sure that you get it right. The, it, it, it becomes obvious that um, your data isn't clean, that you haven't taken the time to think about the constituent, that your, your, your organization may not be as organized as, you, as uh, your constituents would hope. So there's a lot riding on that, kind of, on that kind of personalization. I think it can move an organization forward with leaps and bounds if you get it right. But, I think it could probably cause more harm uh, if you don't if you don't spend the time to get it right.
2: I uh, probably also will sound like a broken record, but uh, this is where that digital transformation can really happen if you do it right. And I think about working with organizations in the past who you know we used to think doesn't matter if I create duplicates, I want to remove every barrier possible for the donor to give me a donation. So now I have, you know, 16 different versions of Kathy Moore in the system, but then I can't personalize anything based on my donor amount, based on the different ways that I engage in the organization, because I exist 16 different ways. And, You know, nowadays, that just isn't acceptable. First of all, data costs money. Data is amplifying at an enormous speed. And uh, you have to hire people to clean that data. So now we're being much more thoughtful around these digital transformation efforts of designing integrations that have matching rules, (laughs) merging rules, um, and that do that very quickly. Because the idea with personalization is it's most relevant Immediately after you take that interaction. So, you don't want to wait three days for somebody to go into the system and merge the data. You want it to be accurate right out of the gate. So, that means building in things like roll up fields that activate right away. It means making sure that you're connecting to the right constituent, to the right household, uh, to the right business, all of those different key points across a number of solutions. Um, And it, it makes an implementation a lot more complicated. You know, used to be we would implement a CRM and then we'd come back later and maybe implement an online fundraising tool or a marketing tool. But That results in a disconnected experience for someone. You know, somebody else might have created an online advocacy tool and none of them are tied together. None of them have the same login experience for people. Nowadays, we're looking at planning all of those things, investing in that roadmap to really allow that transformation to happen over time. And, you know, solution providers like Microsoft, they want to meet you where you are. You want to start with the most critical piece. But as long as you have a roadmap and a plan, You can adjust that plan as you need as technology evolves, but you have a goal of getting to that full 360-degree constituent profile,
1: constituent experience. The flip side to to data is that data is a huge asset. Data can also be a liability. So when Kathy's talking about a roadmap, I think it's really important to be very deliberate about the kind of data you collect. And, and deciding how long you're going to keep it, and how you're going to use it, um, and when you've finished using it, dispose of it. Because as I said in, in today's environment, um, security is always top of mind, um, and you have to think about data from both of those lenses, both both as an asset and as a risk. Don't just collect it and then decide what to do with it. Be very deliberate about um, what you're collecting and when. I think that's a great point, Andy. Um, Because
2: the more data you have in your CRM, in your ecosystem, it also slows down performance. (laughs) It also increases the cost of storage of that data. And, you know, privacy policies encourage us to be very deliberate about
1: the data that we collect and store and only collect that information if we're going to use it for a specific purpose. Do you need a record for every transaction that um, one of your constituents has had with you over time? Or can you summarize that? Uh, as a level or as a note on a file or some other way, um, rather than, you know, keeping hundreds and hundreds of records over time. What, what, what is your intent for that if you are keeping them? That's where the you know the power of these platforms that allow
2: these calculation tools and uh, allow you to program in updating those types of aggregate tools at specific levels and then archiving out or deleting your data are just fantastic.
0: So I feel like the the theme of today's conversation is data. I'll come up with some clever title for this podcast episode that incorporates data because that is the shining star of today. And I have yet another question about data. So we'll roll right into that. So in a digital transformation project or in a nonprofit's overall digital transformation, Andy, I'll start with you. How does data play a role in that? We've talked a little bit about the personalization. I'd like to talk a little bit about... Engagement journeys that that constituents can be part of, and I'd also like to talk about for both of you at the organization, the staff level. Like, how do we manage all of this data and data best practices at the actual organization with all of the different staff members?
1: Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in there, Kaya.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: wow. Yeah. So, starting with uh, starting with the journeys. Um, if there's, if, if digital transformation is the most common buzzword these days, I think the second most common one is journeys. Another term journeys, um, mean that means something completely different from one person to the next. Most people tend to think of journeys from within the program or service that they are, managing. So it's it's what I'm sort of thinking of as a in-program journey. Um, What happens in terms of the interactions with a constituent while they're while they're receiving a service or or entering that process and they might think as far as what happens at the end. I think there's an opportunity to expand our thinking beyond that fairly limited view of a constituent experience within program to the recruitment uh, stage, the intake, and then, yes, absolutely, that, that in-program experience. But thinking about while you're going through this experience or interacting with your organization in, in this particular way, what other opportunities fit nicely with that so that journeys can actually, you know, if, if they can be more complex and split off into essentially increasing the number of touch points that a constituent has. Um, with an organization and therefore, you know, deepening, uh, the relationship, which, you know, for a fundraising organization gives that much more opportunity to, uh, to, to, look for support as well. And I think the other, um, piece around journeys that, that I often like to think about is what happens to alumni. We often think about, you know, uh, someone, Peters out of a program, or or or, or com- the program comes to a natural conclusion. What happens to the alumni of that program, or service, or interaction with a with an organization? Um, I think the other theme, besides data, is is being very deliberate in planning and roadmaps. And I think whenever a program is being thought about uh, in an organization, that 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 exit journey and the alumni experience should be part of the planning.
2: I uh, I love what you said about everybody has a different idea of what a journey is. That's so true. And marketers think about one thing and fundraisers think about something else. And, um, Really, what we're we're starting to see interest in with our clients is moving to that more holistic journey, and moving people across journeys. Um, and as Andy said, you know, looking at the exit points and maybe building exit points or off ramps if somebody is still in a journey but meets qualifications to be in a different journey. And uh, as Andy said, that can be great from a fundraising perspective. You might have somebody slotted in as a you know a middle donor or a you know an annual donor but they might suddenly meet the criteria uh, based on engagement points in your organization you know lead scoring that type of thing for a major gift and you don't want to wait till they get through that journey to move them into an opportunity that might be right there so how do you build those cross journeys identify those Uh, trigger points that should push someone out of one journey and into a different pathway. Um, Do you want to have rules about keeping people out of different journeys at the same time, or do you want to let them make their own choices and, and, and allow them to move that way? And I think that can really trigger some of the other part of your question, Kaya, which is the human nature to protect the data. And, you know, I'm sure we have all worked for organizations where we think that those are my people. Those are my donors. I don't want you emailing them. And, Yes, those conversations are still happening. And it's fascinating to me how it can be different departments in different organizations that are the most tied to keeping their data protected. You know, I've seen, you know, mission organizations where they're doing health services and so protecting the the patient clients uh, from receiving donation requests. I've seen Uh, advocacy departments saying, but my people are special and we have very special asks for them. So don't ask them to do anything else. You know, meanwhile, we have research that says advocates make the best donors and donors make the best advocates. And then, you know, people who have graduated from using services often make great advocates and donors and so how do we approach breaking down those silos within the organization uh, you know one of the things we like to talk about for doing that is is doing some journey mapping as Andy talked about but not a single journey really sitting down bringing the different department leaders together and identifying key constituents you know who are the big sort of groups of people that you're working with and then think about their entire or experience with your organization from their perspective, not from your perspective, but put yourself in the shoes of the volunteer who tries to make a donation and has to you know, be given another phone number and make a second phone call. (laughs) And then, you know, maybe gets frustrated and doesn't bother anymore. Or the volunteer who has, you know, done everything in one sort of fundraising event thing, but doesn't get or see the opportunity to volunteer in a more tactical um, manner in a food bank, for example. So, really letting, uh, letting those opportunities rise to the surface, thinking beyond, These are my people. I don't want to lose them. I don't want to give them other opportunities because they might leave me. Um, and really uh, broadening the way the organization thinks. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of collaboration and it's not always easy for everybody to put
1: themselves in the shoes of somebody else. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. I think there's there's actually a risk. Um, I think everyone intellectually loves the concept of breaking down silos within organizations. But if you replace their department silos and their ownership of constituents or their data, if you replace that with slotting someone into a particular journey that has a label on it, you're actually at risk of recreating that same that same kind of disconnected experience for constituents where we're not interacting them with whole people who can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. A donor and a volunteer uh, and an advocate can be the same person at the same time. And we have to think about journeys. Uh, in all their complexity, to allow that kind you know, of experience to happen.
2: And that, and even, you know, donor, volunteer, advocate, board member, and potentially somebody who can influence their organization to make a very large corporate gift or bring a corporation's team in to volunteer at a specific event. There's so many opportunities for cross promoting journeys. Um, and that kind of brings us back to data, collecting and managing people's communication preferences and not allowing the organization to limit people's choices, but to give people the option to opt themselves out of specific uh, communications, really putting that power back in the constituents' hands.
1: Sometimes it's easy to look, to your point, Kathy, I think it's easy to look at giving um, constituents choices as a risk rather than an opportunity.
0: Andy, we'd started with you know, if an organization hasn't started a CRM project yet, what advice you have? But if somebody's listening to this and creating this big personalization effort, having this big digital transformation effort at an organization, if that feels intimidating, how can you kind of start small and scale over time with technology? Um, do you have any advice? on how you can slowly bring departments in, slowly break down those silos so that it doesn't feel like you're trying to eat the elephant all in one bite.
1: (laughs) Um, So well, I think my first piece of advice was be really, really thoughtful about investing in your base platform. Think about um, what it can do out of the box. Think about um, the future potential that that particular platform has. Um, and did I mention data? Um, I'd always recommend that you, <laughs> that you use that time while you're getting things together, use that time to get your data clean. You will not regret that investment. Um, I think there's, I think there is a great opportunity for some, you know, complex organizations to start with one business area. And bring them on board. If you make that choice right and you get a, a, a department that's really engaged and is really likely, um, to, to, uh, accept adoption, you know, to really, to really run with adoption, um, you're going to create demand within your organization for other business areas to join it. And that's so, such a much more positive way to roll out technology than to try and, um, drag unwilling um, business areas along.
2: I think I, I might have said this earlier, but uh, we are seeing more and more organizations wanting to plan uh, and doing, you know, a technology roadmap and, and really making, making a, a, an intentional choice about platform as the starting point. So are we looking at a Microsoft, a Salesforce, you know, Other tools? Do we want to make uh, a decision to create an ecosystem of a number of different products or do we want to center around a specific platform? And then um, when you're making that initial decision, as Andy said, you're looking out beyond one year. You're looking at the total cost of ownership for those high level things that you want to do over time. It might take 10 years to get to all of those things, but if you have an understanding of the capabilities of the particular platform or ecosystem that you're looking at, Uh, You can make a more informed decision. And then from there, um, we we really do recommend phasing things in because it's much more manageable. In today's world, you don't want to have a project that takes three years to build something and release it because technology changes over three years and business processes change. And fundraising um, tools, fundraising opportunities change over three years. So you really want to start and get something up there. Um, One of the things that we saw a lot through the pandemic was people went to more of what we would call an MVP, minimum viable product approach, build, stand it up, enhance, evolve the solution over time, Um, start with that department or that business area or areas that are most excited about it, as Andy said. And, and for some of our clients, that's not fundraising. For some of our clients, that's their mission work, their program work. There's a, a, a higher demand and a higher interest in transforming those areas. And so then go ahead and start with that but make your decision around the overall approach and the technology roadmap based on your future needs. And you may find that you can, you know, adopt something like Salesforce or Microsoft, integrate some other tools for a short period of time as a band-aid, and then slowly move other pieces into that platform uh, over time.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. If you're looking for more resources on nonprofit tech, be sure to check out the Heller website at teamheller.com. That's T-E-A-M-H-E-L-L-E-R.com.